Sports Analytics Podcast. I'm Alan Kavana of Fox Sports, joined by David Smith of MotorsportsAnalytics.com. On today's episode, a discussion about qualifying that is actually useful, answering your questions about the qualities that make for a great race, the status of Eric Jones and that lingering Christopher Bell question, and the Bristol info you need for making good decisions on Sunday. But first, as always, David, episode 11 of Positive Regression. This is the Junior Johnson edition. We're going with an owner, well, a driver and owner this time. Uh, of course, a legend, the last American hero, first ballot Hall of Famer, the first class of NASCAR Hall of Fame. But when we think of number 11, David, we're thinking about him as a car owner, actually. Uh, just just off the cuff, a uh, list of drivers that, that he has employed. Bobby Isaac, Curtis Turner, A.J. Foyt, Gordon Johncock, Fred Lorenzen, Leroy Yarbrough, Donnie Allison, David Pearson for one race, Neil Bonnet, Davey Allison also for one race, Terry Labonte, Jeff Bodine, Bill Elliott, and Sterling Marlin. But when you think of the 11 and Junior Johnson, the two bellwether drivers were Cale Yarbrough and Daryl Waldrop, and they were employed one right after the other. Uh, Cale Yarbrough in the number 11 car one forty-five times left to go drive for Harry Rainier uh, in the the now famous twenty-eight car. Junior replaced him with Daryl Waldrop, who won forty-three times. That's about as good of a replacement as you're going to have for a driver as great as Kale Yarbrough. But interestingly enough, Junior Johnson ahead of his time is an owner. And I don't know if it was just rudimentary data. I don't know if it was his own experience as a driver. He retired at age thirty-five. He never actually saw his peak. But he hired Kale in 1974, prior to his age 35 season, parted with him after 1980, which was his age 41 season. He hired Daryl in 1981, that was Daryl's age 34 season, parted with him after 1986, which, Alan, I'm going to save you from guessing, it was his age 39 season. No. Um, but, but Junior was pretty pointed, um, very public about only hiring drivers in their 30s. The 20s was when they crashed, and the 40s was when they declined, and he recognized that. There there wouldn't have been hard data at that time, but you're talking about some very early qualitative observations from perhaps the, the smartest, savviest car owner we've had ever. So bravo. I mean, it, it just going back and looking at some of the decisions he made – Kind of makes me, uh, I don't know, wistful. Wish I could, uh, send that resume somewhere. He, he might have been an interesting guy to work for, but, uh, a lot of cool decisions, a lot of success, uh, for that number 11 car. I think what you're saying is that he clearly would have been a positive regression listener. And I think that's really cool to think about. I think, we Johnson. Have, I think we would have been hired so nobody else could hear us. Uh, ahead of his time uh, ahead of his time as you say in many ways uh 119 wins as an owner not including uh when he was driving for himself six championships his last win as an owner david do you remember oh boy mr excitement jimmy spencer two two wins in 1994 was super illegal 
Yes, likely. <laughs> and uh, the last, his last race as an owner, his driver was uh, Elton Sawyer, who now uh, runs the the garage and all the the technical stuff and inspection and all that stuff for NASCAR. And that was way back in 1995. Good to still have Junior Johnson around, uh, shilling his moonshine, <laughs> even at an old age. And uh, the legend is still among us here in Charlotte, which is always cool. So good nugget there. Positive aggression episode 11, the Junior Johnson edition. Let's get back to it though. Uh, back to the track and coming off Texas, David, after three days of racing, I hosted Sirius XM the morning drive on Monday morning. And guess what all the talk was about? It was about the qualifying session that we saw on Friday. Uh, more games. More debate, more rules about what the hell was going on. We were able to have Steve O'Donnell on the show that morning. I asked him candidly if it, you know, on a personal side, when he's looking down on that as an official, does that piss him off to see that? And in not so many words, he spoke the truth and said yes. So once again, we are talking qualifying. And I don't think it's just about the draft. It's not just about the mile and a half and the drafting tracks. This new aero package and new engine package has made track position even more important, which I think you could argue makes qualifying even more important, especially if you want those stage points. So a lot to unpack about the qualifying right now in the cup series. Where do you want to start, David? So I'm curious. I, I saw uh, Jenna Fryer uh, tweet during the week uh, some of her opinions on qualifying last Friday. But the thing and in, in what she said struck me was that this format that we currently qualify under is more entertaining than the single car runs. Not that it's it, it's more entertaining because it is, but does qualifying need to be entertaining? I think I think that's the question we should be asking. Good question. And for years, look, there, there's the camp, the traditionalist that will always say, look, I mean, single car qualifying exists in just about every racing form series that there is and has existed since the beginning of racing itself. It's about pure raw speed. It's about who has the fastest lap, the fastest car. Now, should entertainment matter? Well, I would argue that when it comes to the racing, that's one thing we always look at. Is it entertaining? Is it fun to watch? Is it eye-pleasing to watch? Is it putting out a good product? We think of that so much when it comes to the actual competition and the actual race that we see on Sunday. I would argue, why wouldn't we think about that also when it comes to qualifying? I mean, why not? If we're putting out a product or that is supposed to be both sport and entertainment and have an entertaining aspect to it, why not apply that to qualifying as well? Clearly, I may come across with some sort of bias because I am a TV guy, but if you want a program that some people will tune into, why not apply those same rules to qualifying as well? So I don't mind it. What I do mind is them just sitting there doing nothing for four and a half minutes. I don't necessarily mind the cat and mouse game of going out there and a big pack of drafting cars trying to get a fast slap. Maybe that's just me. Okay, so this wasn't an issue when qualifying wasn't televised in the 80s and 90s, right? Like it was just the, the single car format. It, it, it just, it worked because that's it. That was what they did. There was no need for this to be entertaining. All it was was perfunctory. It was just needed to set the field. Uh, it was 2014 when we unveiled, uh, rounds for qualifying, which I'm, do we need a three round system? I don't think that's, I think that feels like overkill, but when this current format was unveiled, it was referred to as F1 style. 
or European group stage style. Uh, I remember being at Greenville Pickens for a, a weekly show and they had European style qualifying <laughs> while also hawking bologna burgers at the concession stands. That was a little uh-huh. jarring, but, um, they referred to this as, as F1 style and I, and, and that comparison struck me as just wrong. For motorsportsanalytics.com back in 2013, I looked into this. The longest race distance that year on the F1 schedule was 192 miles. And NASCAR Cup Series races are routinely 400, 500 mile affairs. Is qualifying that necessary to the outcome? I mean, there, there are just more opportunities. There are, there's close proximity racing. There are, are restarts. Uh, even in that year alone in 2013, there were 988 total passes for position across 19 Formula One races. In the Cup Series, the same year, across 36 races, there were 127,306 passes. So there's far more opportunity to regain any track position that you don't get during qualifying. Um, And, oh, by the way, in F1, 15% of all passes take place within the first two laps of the event. The Cup Series doesn't have that issue. So, yeah, yeah, I think three rounds is overkill, but I, I'm, I'm just of the mind of why, why can't this, why can't this just be simple? Why can't it be single car runs? I get that that isn't an entertaining television product, but look, nowadays you can turn this into a talk show. You can, you can have uh, driver interviews. You can make this something while qualifying is going on in the background. I think there are more creative ways to do that. But what we've seen on Fridays now with the, the weird waiting game that we're doing is just ridiculous. I, I feel like my intelligence is being insulted every week. So I can, I can identify with what Steve O'Donnell has to say is this is, are, are we, are we knocking in a, a thumbtack with a sledgehammer, uh, with this? I, I don't know, but I, it just, it feels like what we're doing right now is a bit too much considering all of these positions that we see in clean air. Yes, it's important, but there are plenty of opportunities during a race to to go out and get that track position. Why why can't we just worry about the racing be entertaining and let qualifying settle as it does? I will argue for the entertainment side. One thing I can't argue with is the traditionalists who worry that the fastest car, the prestige that comes with it, is not the one necessarily sitting on the pole. And I, I don't have an argument for that other than uh, there's – there's a balance to it, and sometimes you want a more entertaining uh, format that doesn't necessarily guarantee the fastest car is sitting there on the pole. One other now, if I'm arguing against myself here, the biggest race of the year, the Daytona 500, was single car qualifying, and there seems to be no issue with that. Correct. So, uh, if it's good for one thing, I don't understand why it's so bad for the others. But NASCAR asks fans. TV certainly weighs in. I just wish we don't have this sitting on pit road and waiting. That 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 does seem to that that bothers me more than anything about the format is just sitting there waiting. It's like, come on, just make the round short and send them out there. But look, I don't have the answer. I wish I did. Yeah, I I don't want I want to see you on on television more. You can be interviewing people during single car runs. It can be you know Alan Kavana host qualifying every Friday. That's how we on, do the trucks. On I mean, FS1. really, if I mean, you, it's, if you watch truck qualifying. That's what happens. Yeah, and I see nothing wrong with that. At least if, for those working in the industry, uh, hear about driver and team complaints about maybe, maybe the race telecast doesn't get to them 
and their exposure values that they can tout to potential sponsors aren't very high, maybe this is the hedge. Uh, maybe this is a way to get every driver, every, every car on television and have new drivers ingratiating themselves to fans. This is an opportunity for that. Qualifying is a necessity. We need to set the field somehow, but I don't know that it needs to be entertaining to the point of ridiculousness every weekend. We will see what they do. They asked Steve O'Donnell on SiriusXM earlier this week when we were talking, uh, suggested, and there there could very well be change by the time we ne- go to the next mile and a half in Kansas. So we will see. Moving on, we ask for your questions, the listeners out there on in the social media sphere and the Positive Regression fans. And we asked and got plenty of submissions. And uh, we got a great one, though, from at 618DK on Twitter. That question was, quote, Every week we ask, was this a good race? If you were to go down a list of what many consider to be the greatest races of all time and search for some common traits, what are the quantifiable ingredients that make up a good race? Is it margin of victory, last lap pass, number of lead changes? David, great question because there's no exact answer. And I guess to answer that question, we first had to come up with a list of some all-time races, the, the easy ones that pe- that immediately come to some people's minds. We, you and I did a little prep work. Uh, what, what's on that list? When you think about this, if you're listening right now, what immediately comes to your mind when you think of some of the greatest races of all time? David, what did we come up with? It's it's tough to make assumptions of, of what are widely considered that, but um, I think we've got a list. Uh, Daytona, 1979. Atlanta, 1992. Talladega 2000, that was Dale Earnhardt Sr.'s final win. Atlanta 2001, that was the Kevin Harvick-Jeff Gordon showdown. Darlington 2003, Ricky Craven's uh, last lap pass over Kurt Busch for the win. Homestead 2004, the finale for the first year of the chase. Homestead 2011, and Chicagoland 2018. All of these subjective, but Alan, what I found interesting, looking at these races, the commonalities... Uh, for starters, all of them had spectacular finishes. Uh, five of them were actually last lap passes for the win. So to me, it seems the, the end of races really sticks in the minds as, uh, as time goes on. Uh, four of these were season finales that decided championships. Uh, one was the first race ever televised from flag to flag, uh, the, the, the 79 Daytona 500. Uh, so those, those five events it tells me that these were, uh, high stakes. The world was watching. And then one, one other thing. None of these are short tracks, uh, which is, brings that me back to a, a very yeah, interesting. Yeah. Look, I've, I have a personal theory that the, the vocal NASCAR fans on social media like the idea of short track races more than they actually like short track races because, Look, if you want my opinion, the Martinsville spring race is annually a clunker and Richmond hasn't had an entertaining race since Kyle Busch turned to Dale Earnhardt Jr. And that was over 10 years ago. So there, that, that's what I think about short tracks. But Alan, what do you think about the commonalities? Does the finish have to be spectacular? It, it seems yes is the answer. It seems so. And the idea, again, was this a good race? It's such a subjective question to, it's such a, a personal question to some, you know, it's such an individual question. Uh, it doesn't, when we made the list of, of the ones we're going off of, like Daytona 1979, Atlanta 92 with Alan Kowicki winning and the championship race there, Dale Earnhardt's last win, the Chicago slide job last year. Yeah. I mean, all 
those have spectacular finishes. So those stand out. What I worry about is like the Talladega race when Dale Earnhardt wins his final race. That's a 500 mile race. What are we thinking about? We're thinking about the end of the race, those final few laps where he goes from 18th to the win. That's awesome. That is great to remember. Does that mean all 500 miles of, of that race were worth talking about? Atlanta 92. I, I think that gave us enough storylines. You know, the three championship contenders, the, the championship contenders having problems and the sudden swing from, from Davey Allison to Bill Elliott to Alan Kowicki. That to me is a complete race. That is what I would consider a good race. Chicago 2018. Are, do we remember that because of the slide job or because the entire, you know, two and a half, three hour race was good? Uh, your definition of a good race really depends on how you're thinking of this. So, but the commonalities that we're looking at when we made our list, good finishes make for a good race and it makes you forget a lot. And, uh, I don't necessarily mind that. I mean, there, we've seen races. I think I was thinking of a, a Richmond race where I think Denny Hamlin, I may be remembering this wrong, but I feel like he, he led like 370 of the 400 laps or something. And then something happened to him. And then there was a good battle for the win between two other drivers. Uh, and then you, you go on and you remember that as a, as a decent race, but really it was dominated by one driver and it wasn't that great of a race. So it's such a subjective question, David. What, what do you think of the, what the, the, the list that we made? What do you think about this collection of races that, that we just mentioned? Four of them were season finales. If NASCAR didn't invent the point system the way that it did, maybe those races would have mattered less. Do you think that the interest and intensity in which those events rattled off being artificially created, do, do, does that does that concern you? Should we artificially create more uh, interesting moments? That, that's a great question. I mean, you think about Homestead 2011. Tony Stewart versus Carl Edwards. Great race. Awesome race, actually. But knowing it was for the championship makes it even better and memorable, right? If you take the championship equation out of it and that aspect, I think it's still a great race. Now, can you say the same, say, about Homestead or uh, when Kurt Busch won the championship or Atlanta in 1992? I mean, what made that race was the underdog of Alan Kowicki and being there at the end. Remember, he didn't win that race, uh, but he was the champion at the end. There were storylines throughout. If that storyline of the championship isn't there, do we remember that particular day itself as a great race? I think that is an excellent question, and I think that would skew it. If we took the championship and points out of it, I think we go back to more memorable, say, last lap passes or finishes as what more people would consider a good race like Darlington 03 with uh, Ricky Craven and Kurt Busch, the Chicago slide job uh, with Kyle Larson and Kyle Busch. So uh, championship form or points on the line, that, that definitely enhances how we remember things as great or so-so or average when it comes to, I think, our quality of races. That, I mean, that's just that was a great point you brought up. Look, a, a, a good race to someone might be a boring race to someone else, or there might just be one personal reason why this race matters a lot to you. Um, Alan, I asked you for, for a list of your personal favorites. Um, um, I'm anxious to hear them now. I want to see if there's a, if there's a pattern in between those. 
Well, I don't, I mean, I don't have a long list, but I think what it goes back to is that, you know, being a journalist and being, I'm a storyteller, right? At the end of the day, I was a fan. So plenty of my favorite races are going to involve Rusty Wallace going on and winning back when I was a fan, especially if he could, you know, knock Jeff Gordon out of the way at Richmond or win at Martinsville at Jeff Gordon's expense or, you know, stuff like that when, when it was Rusty Wallace winning. Uh, I found those to be good races, but as a storyteller, as someone with no skin in the game in terms of, fandom. I go back to last year's Homestead race, uh, the championship race in which Joey Lugano won. And I bring that up because I it, it fits my personal definition of a good race. Even if you take the championship aspect out of it, you had the four big names who were the four title contenders, even if they weren't title contenders, but they were the four big names who all had something to race for. They all led 20 or more laps in that race. There was two other drivers, Denny Hamlin and Kyle Larson, who led more than 40 laps. So we have an array of different leaders, an array of contenders. To me, that helps contribute to a good race. We had just, you know, it starts in the sun, it goes to the night. That means different strategy and handling and teams having to adjust. I like that aspect of teams on the pit box, having to uh, employ strategy and having to keep up with the car. To me, that helps create a good race when I think of things. And then uh, there was 22 lead changes. I think that always helps. At the end, it came down to a good short-run car versus a good long-run car and a caution that helps set up one final run. And in the end, it was a short-run car of Joey Logano that ended up winning. What I remember that as a good race. It was an entertaining race. There were stories to tell throughout. And it's things like that, that like, like that race that I, in my head, that fits the definition of a good race. And David, I, I used to think, or every, we all remember moments, a last lap pass would be great or a close finish. I looked up the margin of victory in that race was actually 1.7 seconds, which is pretty big nowadays anyway. That's a large margin of victory Joey Logano won by at Homestead, and I did not remember that. I did not see remember that as being a negative. I don't remember Joey Logano winning by a lot or saying, oh, what a blowout, because the entire race, most of the 400 miles to me was entertaining and storyline filled. And to me, that is the definition of a good race. And that's what I look for when I'm watching on Sundays. So that's interesting. When I, I do agree that that was a good race. And my lasting impression of it was on the final restart, all four championship drivers were first through fourth. And I recall... That's how they finished, too. Yeah, and I recall thinking, I don't know how this race is going to finish. I don't know how it's going to play out. As far as the in, the entirety of the race, is that something that's going to stick with you? As, as the years tack on, I mean, are you going to remember that it was from flag to flag a complete race? Uh, yeah, honestly, I will because that's how I judge a judge a good race. And and the fact that we did have the championship aspect, it helped me focus on those four drivers. So I'll always remember all four of those drivers led twenty or more laps that day. You know what I mean? That 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 just shows me the parity. That that shows me that they all had a shot at different points in the race. That's what I remember about it being so good because you had these four contenders. It wasn't a foregone conclusion at any point for any one of them. And they all led 20 or more laps and number of leaders, lead changes. I think all those things are what I'll remember about a good race. And that's how, that's the standard I apply to any Sunday, really. So I'm interested to hear what your list is. Uh, actually, I, so I've got a list of three races that I physically attended. Uh, so, so there is that, uh, I was there, uh, to witness all of them. 
the first is the 1993 uh, summer race at Talladega. It was the first Talladega race since Davey Allison's death. He was my favorite driver. Uh, they had a, uh, a small moment of remembrance when uh, Donnie Allison uh, got behind the wheel of the 28 car and, and took a lap around the track. Robbie Gordon actually filled in uh, the 28 and crashed out within about 50 laps, just embarrassing himself in front of a sold-out crowd at Talladega Super Speedway that day. It was also Neil Bonnet's comeback race. He knocked the fence down, uh, causing about a two-hour red flag where yours truly received one of the worst sunburns he's ever had. Another caution, Jimmy Horton's car flew over the turn two yes. wall, yeah. and in the same accident, uh, Stanley Smith, an Alabama native, nearly died. He was placed into a coma afterwards and uh, eventually recovered and would go on to race again. And the finish of the race does kind of fit what we've been talking about Dale Earnhardt versus Ernie Irvan both led the same amount of laps, but the margin of victory was five one thousandths of a second between the two guys that at that moment in time were the best restrictor plate racers. Another race, it's another restrictor plate race, the 2006 Bud Shootout. Uh, Denny Hamlin, it was his first race uh, as the full-time driver of the number 11 FedEx uh, car. Uh, he won it. I recall Kyle Busch and Tony Stewart also being atypically aggressive. Bump drafting was so prevalent that it became a problem and then eventually banned as Speed Weeks progressed. Um, but it was such an aggressive race, and that was visible. To see drivers put outside their comfort zone a little bit, could hear it over uh, over their radio, and then in uh, the post race interviews afterwards, it was clear that it was it was very dicey for even the the drivers in the throes of the competition. But that was one of the best races I've ever seen. It also helps that the lap count was pretty low, and it was just a good event. And then I cheated on the third one, the 2008 Winchester 400. David Stremme, an Indiana native, uh, won in his home state uh, that year, beating out Kyle Busch in a Kyle Busch-owned late model. And if you can recall the movie The Dark Knight Rises, at the end of the movie, there's this big street brawl where Batman and Bane are throwing people to the side, just looking for each other, just so they can get together and just throw hands that was David Stremme and Kyle Busch on this day. There were there were other drivers in this race. Uh, Chris Gabehart was actually the pole sitter, if I remember correctly. But for me, it was those two. And it felt like they were the only two on the racetrack. Uh, they were pinching each other going into turn two, trying to pin uh, one another to the wall. They were hitting triple digits uh, when they were uh, doing their live pit stops because there is no pit road speeding if you can't uh, don't have an apparatus which to catch them. So uh, no problem um, blazing down pit lane. But that was uh, just a wild show. And it wasn't anything special contrived. It was just a, a big race and two really good drivers throwing haymakers for probably the last 100 laps of that race. So that that's what sticks with me as well. I don't know if there's a pattern other than maybe just um, I, I like races where drivers are forced outside their comfort zone, forced to actually drive the car, and they have to use every ounce of talent and cunning they have at their disposal uh, to see if they can win. Um, I, I Apparently, based on this list, I really enjoy things when they are totally in the driver's hands. 
And it's interesting you picked three races that you attended. Maybe that factors in as well to if you recall or remember something as a good race. It's an interesting discussion because it is so subjective. But uh again, it goes back to uh, a question that was tweeted at us about oh, what are the common factors? And for some of the all-timers, uh, I think we I think you found some good commonality. So good research there, David. Oh, yeah. Getting back to this season, though, uh Eric Jones. We're going to talk about him because... He had a good run at Texas, but I have to say, David, he spins out on lap 15, and immediately, immediately, I see on Twitter people coming for his job and asking Christopher Bell or making jokes about, oh, here comes, uh, the, you know, making room for Christopher Bell is, you know, after Eric Jones spins because is that fair? Definitely not. But. Is it going to happen until Toyota tells us what's going to happen with Christopher Bell? And the answer is yes. Uh, we saw this at the end of last year when Denny Hamlin was struggling. All of a sudden, Denny Hamlin comes out of the gate with two wins. And now it's uh, someone else in the Toyota team or under the Toyota banner who's going to get beat up and questioned upon in looking for a place for Christopher Bell to go. At that moment, before Eric Jones rebounded to come back and finish fourth in Texas, uh, it was Eric Jones. Um, natural questions, I guess. But, David, where do you see Eric Jones right now? Because if you look at where he stands this season, he started out hot with a third-place finish, then I believe a seventh place, and then four straight finishes where he didn't even crack the top 13 and then bounced back last week in Texas for fourth. How do you assess Eric Jones's season and or career at this moment? Well, the inconsistencies can be chalked up to the fact that he's young. Uh, as a matter of fact, he's a year and a half younger than Christopher Bell. Uh, but if you're going to bring him to the Cup Series so soon, you have to be willing to stomach some of the mistakes. But the fact of the matter is, Eric Jones is really damn good. He ranked ninth in peer last year in the Cup Series. He ranks ninth again right now. From a positional standpoint, he is the best mover late in races with a series best 4.4 position red zone gain. He's a heck of a closer. Uh, Daytona, he gained 28 positions in the final one-tenth of that race. Atlanta, he gained 17. He finished fourth at Texas, but that was actually the first race this season he incurred a red zone loss. I like what he and Chris Gale are able to do late in races, it would probably help them to perform better at the beginning of races and start putting together complete races. But I would be baffled if such a move was made. I I, I would have a, a really tough time giving up on a driver as good as Eric Jones. Christopher Bell was my number one prospect on motorsportsanalytics.com, but before Bell was a number one prospect, Eric Jones was a number one prospect a few years ago. I don't know that I think of one more highly than the other, but to give up on Jones, who now is going to have three years of experience in the Cup Series over Bell and the fact that he's younger, that is a really tough call. Um, I, I would actually, not that I have anything against what Martin Truex is able to do. This is his age 39 season. He should be fine this year, but... I would actually be more inclined to cut bait on Martin Truex before I would uh, get rid of uh, Eric Jones to make room for Chris Bell. That would also set up a, a fun Chris Bell, Cole Pern, driver, crew chief combo, which could uh, give us, I don't know, a, a lot of positive regression mileage. But 
Uh, <laughs> I am I am not Toyota. I am not Joe Gibbs Racing. I'm curious to see what happens, but man, I hope it. I hope nothing happens at the expense of Eric Jones because this kid he does not get uh, enough acclaim, but he's really good. And again, is it fair to ask that question about Eric Jones? No, especially for the resume and stats that you just listed. But it's only natural to ask until we have some sort of answer uh solving the Christopher Bell mystery. And until then, we will speculate about it and we will ask and uh, uh the Twitter buzz will will be a buzz until there is some sort of answer. You know, there was I'm sure there were points last year where everybody thought, well, I mean, you know, Daniel Suarez, he's part of the future in Toyota, JGR. Well, guess what? There was suddenly a another free agent available, and things happen quickly. So if you think about contracts or sponsorship or what have you, I don't know how it all works, but I know things can change very quickly. So those two things, those two precedents, the Christopher Bell question and how quickly things we can change and how quickly we've seen them change, will only naturally uh, lead to some questions. And one way, look, one way Denny Hamlin got off the, the rumor mill or the, the Christopher Bell replacement list was going out there and winning races. So let's talk about Eric Jones, David, uh, this weekend in Bristol. What makes, uh, Eric Jones a driver to watch in Bristol? Eric Jones at Bristol, it's his passing that makes him special. In 2017, he was the sixth most efficient passer on short tracks as a rookie. Uh, he fell off that last year. He didn't crack positive on short track passing, but his summer race at Bristol did yield a positive adjusted differential. His restarts there, also fantastic. Uh, he gained over three spots per preferred groove restart in each of his two spring Bristol starts. Uh, I see similarities to the big banked speedy tracks he had a lot of success on in late models. To Bristol, it makes sense that he would find some comfort in this particular track size and shape. So far, he's proved pretty sporty. He, I mean, he he hasn't won, but he has had memorable performances. Certainly, even with this kind of talk out in the ether, um, he would be one to watch this weekend. All right, so that's something people can look at when out there on the track and Eric Jones doing that very well at Bristol and beyond. Keeping on Bristol, let's give you a little preview. We did it last week for Texas, and if you listened, I think you it was a big benefit uh, to the factors that can make for a Texas race and how it plays out. Uh, we are heading to Bristol, second short track in a few weeks. David, I think we can expect some of that sticky stuff down on the bottom, the VHT, the PJ1, what have you. But regardless, the racing at Bristol, how is Bristol typically won? 12 times in the last 28 races, the fastest car won. That's a rate of 43%, which is a scooch higher than the 40% norm across all tracks. It pays to have a fast car. Uh, it's good to be able to pass, too, and move through traffic, but there isn't anything from a, a statistics point of view suggesting Bristol clearly rewards its best passers. I would say the game plan is to accumulate track position over the course of the 500 laps. And if you're not the leader, then you're going to be hoping for some late restarts because lane assignment on restarts is key at Bristol. Consider this. The outside groove at Bristol is the preferred groove, and Bristol presents the worst restart dynamic in all of NASCAR. Last summer, those in the outside groove retained position 93% of the time, 
Cars, wow. in, uh, cars lined up in the inside group retained nine, that is 9.0% of the time. The positional difference between the two across the first seven rows was 343 positions. At that point, at that kind of number, it doesn't really matter how good or efficient of a restarter you are. It is possible to keep your position when you're trapped on the inside groove. That's what the 9% tells us. <laughs> but it's it's simply too daunting for most, and you cannot count on it. Really, if if you're able to acquire and retain track position over the course of a race at Bristol, you're playing your odds. You're you're hoping for some good fortune on lane assignment. And I got to tell you, uh, third place in the running order at Bristol Motor Speedway is probably the worst position to be in all year in NASCAR. That that position on restarts over the last 43 attempts kept its position just once. Uh, running in third at Bristol, I see no benefit to that. You are you are just setting yourself up for for a a big loss. I don't think anybody comes to comes to a racetrack to to run third anyway. But certainly at Bristol, that is a that's a spot that you might want to avoid. Uh, I don't think they pull out a podium at Bristol, so I I can't see too many gains being had there. But a lot of it is just going to be hold your own until about the final 50 laps and then see where the chips fall. Damn, that third place stat. That is the reason we listen to positive regression, David, because that is a hell of a stat. That is, uh, I'm just processing that. I can't wait to uh, think about that tour and any restart at Bristol. I'm going to be watching that third place car and see, uh, just how difficult it is. Uh, I remember a few years ago, Matt Benedetto just, you know, hitting the restart lottery and, uh, finishing, I think it was a sixth place and, uh, tears afterward only. And, and look, obviously he earned it, but a lot of it, uh, was you could attribute to, uh, fortune on some of those restarts and being in that lane and being able to earn and, and gain some of those positions in what is clearly the preferred line, maybe the most preferred line all season in NASCAR. So, so I don't know, that can make races, I don't know, or winners or people who may do well hard to predict only because you don't, can't guess what lane they may be in on the final few restarts, but you do know who can, has the potential to perform well there. David, if I had to ask of you, uh, I don't know, a potential sleeper or someone at least you're watching this weekend in Bristol, who would it be? Oh, I think it'd be Chase Elliott. Uh, yeah, I, I threw him under the bus uh, for MotorsportsAnalytics.com, and I'm one of uh, one of the top underachievers of of uh, 2019 so far. And, and the he had top a, underachiever. <laughs> he, had a, he had a good day at Texas, but I but actually I wrote that with with Bristol in mind because I figured if there's going to be anything that breaks him out of a, a early season slump, it'd be this place. Last year, his best single race surplus passing value came in this very race, uh, the Spring Bristol race. His restart problems we talked about on uh, this podcast last week will probably be neutralized this coming weekend based on the restart dynamic that we just spoke about. Uh, it, we know that he's capable of having track position. If he can get good fortune, it would certainly break in his favor. He did have the race's fastest car last August, um, didn't pull out the win, but he has plenty of Bristol speed. He'll be carrying that this weekend. I think he'd be one to watch. 
I'm going with his teammate. If I'm looking at anybody, uh, you know, aside from the, the Penske's and Joe Gibbs of the world, I'm going with his teammate, Jimmy Johnson. And it, it's weird to think of, again, we're still, even, even though the, the, it's right in front of our faces and Jimmy Johnson coming off the first top five and, and a performance that really opened some eyes in Texas. It's still, I'm still, uh, Maybe the jury's still out, or I'm still want a little proof of what he may be able to do this year. But if there's, again, like you said about Chase, if there's one track to kind of bounce back at or where we expect something good, I expect something good out of Jimmy Johnson this weekend. Since they've gone to the stages, David, he has been in the top 10 in every single stage since they, they started doing that two years ago in 2017. In, in stage one and stage two, all four races since then, he's been in the top 10. Top 10s both races last year during the finish. I think he snuck in 11th place in there at some point in 2017. And that's been recently anyway, uh, his worst finish, but one of his best finishes, he had a win there just a few years ago. Yeah. Uh, so I expect him to keep, uh, Texas was a surprise. Him doing well at Bristol would not be a surprise to me. So I expect, uh, to see Jimmy Johnson doing some good things and that's who I will be keeping my eye on. So I guess we're both looking at Team Hendrick after a, a stellar weekend in Texas. Are we expecting big things out of them in Bristol, David? Well, if, think that I mean, would happen. We, we put Jimmy Johnson out the pasture last week, right? Like, so if, <laughs> if there's if there's anything left in the tank, we should see it at Bristol. I, I hope if it's not there. Then I don't know. I don't know where we're going to see it from uh, from Jimmy Johnson. But I think it's fair to say that Hendrick Motorsports is capable of bringing fast pieces to Bristol Motor Speedway. I wouldn't I wouldn't write them off at all. Uh, and uh, maybe Texas was a little bit different, but. Uh, this track, this, uh, this organization, it seems to go together. I'd like to believe he listened to last week's episode of Positive Regression and that, uh, just ticked him off even further and he went out and did well. I'm just going to go on ahead and assume that. Yeah. David, because if you don't receive a Christmas card from him, you'll, you'll know that, that that was the case. <laughs> well, we know Jimmy Johnson listens, but if we want you to know as well, we are available on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, and Podbean. We have all your favorite devices covered. If you like what you're hearing, Please leave us a rating or a review that helps us uh, gain some visibility. Your help in spreading the word is appreciated. If you have questions, as you just heard today on this episode, we will answer them, especially good questions like the ones we got presented on Twitter this week. So shoot them over to us to hit us up on Twitter at POSREGPOD, P-O-S-R-E-G-P-O-D. We love your questions. We love to answer them. David, what are you up to on motorsportsanalytics.com? Uh, well, I actually did some moonlighting for NASCAR.com uh, earlier this week, writing about the impact of Denny Hamlin's pit road speeding penalties uh, or lack thereof. I'll, I'll leave that for uh, for readers. It is free for everyone, and uh, you can go to motorsportsanalytics.com and access that article. Uh, at the end of the week, uh, I'll be writing about the top overachievers that we've seen so far in 2019 based on production and equal equipment rating. So be on the lookout for that. Yeah, go click on that Denny Hamlin article. I promise you will learn something, and it will be eye-opening. Uh, I will not be heading to Bristol this weekend. The trucks, unfortunately, have uh, the month of April off to sort of sit there and stew and regroup, so I won't be on pit road uh, this weekend, but I will be watching Bristol, so make sure you check out all that action on FS1 and Fox. And if you are listening to this on Thursday morning, thank you for being a subscriber, and make sure you watch Race Hub on Thursday, because I will be talking to Jim 
Jimmy Johnson's crew chief, Kevin Mendering, coming off that great run in Texas and as we look toward Bristol. Uh, so I'll post that on Twitter if you do in miss Thursday's edition of Race Sub, but make sure you don't. It's a good, uh, it's a quality show we have over there on FS1. So, uh, thank you for listening to Positive Regression. This is, ep- has been episode 11. Of course, a motorsports analytics podcast for David Smith. I'm Alan Kamana. Make sure you stay positive and thank you for listening. Rose Davis, historian and co-host of the sports podcast, Burn It All Down. And now I'm hosting the new season of American Prodigy, all about black girls in gymnastics. For the last 40 years, black gymnasts have moved from the margins to the core of the sport and changed gymnastics along the way. Now they tell their stories. You'll meet trailblazers like Diane Durham, superstars like Jordan Childs, and everyone in between. Listen to American Prodigies on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts.